Mark 14, on page 851 in the Church Bible. Mark 14, going to read from verse 53 to 65. Mark uh, 14, Mark 14, verse 53 to 65. This is the scene where the Lord Jesus Christ has been arrested, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony didn't agree. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his testimony. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. The guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this record of the Lord Jesus and what happened. And, O God, as we think of him again tonight, we pray for help, Lord. These are things we are all familiar with, things we would all agree with. But again, we ask, O Lord, stir our memory and stir our affections for our great Savior. Lord, bless the name of Christ to us tonight. We ask in his name. Amen. In Matthew 24, as the Lord Jesus describes the scene that will take place, which turns out to take place in 70 AD when the Roman army under Titus, uh, they surround Jerusalem and they destroy Jerusalem. The soldiers come into the temple and they place their banners, their ensigns, with images of their pagan gods on them. They, they set them up in the temple. Uh, they, the soldiers do this in fulfillment of what Daniel prophesied of and what Christ now describes as the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see that happening, then there's trouble coming. And you know the story, the Roman army destroys the whole mountaintop area, the city, the walls, the temple, all of it is pulled down to the ground. And the Lord Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, if, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus gives us a description there that in this age, this new covenant age, there will be many who come professing to be the Christ. 
And when you look at history, both church history and secular history, there are many people, many people. For example, a chap called Moses of Crete in the 5th century claimed to be the Christ. Anne Lee from Manchester was a Quaker, and in 1772 she considered herself to be the female version of the Christ. More recent, more modern claims of deity tend to dress themselves up to deliberately appear as what Jesus, they think, would have looked like to their followers. For example, there's a chap called Henry Cristo of Brazil. The history to him is he grew up in a Catholic family. He then became an atheist until around the 1970s when, and I'm quoting, a powerful voice awakened in him a spiritual transformation. He said that this voice told him, you are the Christ. And so he began to tour and to preach, and he slowly gathered a following. Apparently, he was thrown out of America. Apparently, he was thrown out of the UK. And now he lives in Brazil. He lives in a walled camp, uh, camp or uh, compound with barbed wire around it. He lives with 12 disciples. Most of them are women, actually, when you look online. It's interesting. Another one is someone called Vesarion of Siberia. This is a self-appointed leader of the Church of the Last Testament. And here's a man with a following of up to about 10,000. His camp, his place of gathering is in the frozen mountains of the Siberian forest. And people have come from all over the world to live with him in these wooden huts following their Messiah. There are about 4,000 people living there in their wooden huts, believing that this man is the Christ. Like with Henry of Brazil, Vesarian, or his first name, Sergei Porup, uh, he began life as a normal sort of person. He served in the Russian army. He was a soldier. He was in a factory worker, then a patrol officer. Then he lost his job. Then, age 29, he had a vision. And in this vision, he saw someone telling him, you are the Christ, and particularly, you are the Word of God. And so he changed his name from Sergei to Fisarian, which means he who gives new life. And he began to dress up, change his appearance to look like what Jesus probably looked like. Apparently, he was arrested in 2020 by Russian security forces as being sort of deviant in terms of uh, religion. He's still in prison now at the minute with one of his main followers. These are real people. And there are others who have claimed to be the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, who others have then believed and begun to follow. And tonight we could sit listening to this and looking at those images and maybe we smile and think, you know, <laughs> how could people be fooled like that? These people must be really naive to have been deceived by a man like that, or a woman. But why should we believe that a carpenter from Nazareth was the Christ? Why should we? You think of what Isaiah said of him, Isaiah 53 verse 2, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth, as he was known, he appeared as nothing more than a typical Galilean Jew, not a sort of a blonde, blue-eyed white man as some paintings depict him. Neither was he a black man like Malcolm X says he was, but just a very 
average looking Jew from Nazareth. And think too of what Nathaniel thought of Nazareth when Philip told him in John 1.45, we have found the Christ, uh, Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel replies, really? From Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? In other words, you've got to be joking, Philip. How could the Christ, the Christ, come from such a rundown town as Nazareth? So why should we follow Jesus of Nazareth? This ordinary bloke from a nowhere town, why him? Why uniquely him? Why exclusively him? And not any of these guys we've looked at tonight. Well, first of all, by what he did. By what he did. When John opens his gospel narrative, he says in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He looked at Jesus of Nazareth and said, we have seen the glory of the word in that man. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, as you know, because we've looked at it, John goes on to describe what that glory looked like. And where does he go first? He begins with the wedding at Cana and what Jesus did there when he turned the water into wine. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. We saw his glory. Yes, he wasn't much to look at. Yeah, just an ordinarily looking bloke from a nowhere town. But from time to time, we saw the glory of God, like at Canaan. And John records seven signs that manifested this glory as of the only Son. Healing the royal official's son, chapter 4. Healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 chapter 6, walking on water, chapter 6 again, healing the man born blind, chapter 9, raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11. Arguably, there's an eighth when Jesus was raised from the dead, chapter 20. Eight signs to show the glory of God in this ordinary-looking bloke called Jesus of Nazareth. And that last one, the raising from the dead, that's what Paul highlights as the, the identifier. In Romans 1 verse 3, he says, the good news is about God's son Jesus. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown or declared to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. So these miracles manifested the glory of this man known as Jesus of Nazareth. They, they pointed to, they gave glimpses to who he really was. And you and I, when we read scripture, we read these miracles, these signs and wonders, the, the great danger is that we become overly familiar with them, so much so that we lose the thrill of them, we lose the wonder of them. I don't know what your favorite film is, but I'm sure you've got a favorite film. How many times have you watched it? And you know how it ends, don't you? But after the tenth time, it's not like the first time. Maybe it was on a Christmas time, and there it was again on TV, but you fell asleep through it because you've seen it before. You know how it ends. You know what song's coming next if it's a musical. All of these sorts of things, we, we can become so familiar with what at first blew us away. The great danger is that you and I, we run out of praise because we have become dried up with wonder at what that man, Jesus, did. The signs and the wonders he did that set him apart 
as truly the Son of God. How he could read the thoughts of those around him. How he could see Nathaniel where Nathaniel was before he actually saw him. These were all factual, God-like acts that others who claimed to be the Christ couldn't do. came across one humorous story of a guy called Arnold Potter. Arnold was a 19th century Mormon who, again, declared to be the Christ. He, sorry, declared himself uh, to be uh, the Christ. He, he was a Mormon. He became a missionary for the Mormon church. And then, as they all do, he experienced these personal revelations. And he wrote his own book, a, a revelation from God through him to people. He said it had been dictated to him by angels. Don't they all say that? Don't they all say that? Angel so-and-so came to me and said, you know, what has come before is all wrong. This is the truth. And this is what Arnold Potter believed. He was so convinced that he was the Christ, he had a, a tattoo put on his forehead. <laughs> if he got it wrong after that, then boy, it's too late now. Potter Christ, the living God, morning star. He would walk around town wearing a white robe. He would preach his messages to whoever would listen to him. And, and of course, many did. And many became followers of him. I quote something here. In 1872, Potter informed his congregation that he had been, had been revealed to him that it was now time for him to ascend bodily into heaven. He and his followers accordingly ascended a cliff with Potter riding on a donkey until they reached the edge of a cliff. After a brief sermon in which he explained that he was now ascending to heaven but would return, Potter leaped from the edge and gravity prevented his ascension. End quote. Gravity prevented his ascension. You see, it's easy to say things about yourself and wear a white robe and ride on a donkey. Yes, and look Messiah-like. But Jesus actually did what was said the Messiah would do. I have come to do everything that is written of me. When he walked with those people to the, to, who were on the road to Emmaus, and he opened up the scriptures to them, and their hearts burned because they could see how it was him after all. He really was the Christ. We thought he was the Christ, but then he went and died on us. Yes, but now we see he was the Christ. He really is the Son of God. When John the Baptist, he wobbled a bit in his faith and because he had preached that when, when the Christ comes with his winnowing fork and he's going to really be angry with all the sinners and so forth, and, and Jesus comes and he doesn't do that. He comes as merciful and lowly and loving and saying, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. John, John wobbles a bit. And so he sends a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Christ? And Luke writes in Luke seven twenty one at that very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Those things which Jesus lists they're what the Old Testament prophets said the Christ would do when he came. And Christ did them. In the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus did them and more. He did it to demonstrate and to confirm his identity as the Son of God. And now he tells us there'll be no more appearances until the coming again. So if somebody says, there he is, don't believe it. 
faithful believer. The Christ has come, he's gone back. When he comes again, you'll know for sure that's the Christ. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the deity of Christ in what he said. For example, now we could refer to many examples, but just let me give you a few, and that's our reading tonight from Mark 14, when the Lord Jesus is standing accused at his trial, and there he is before the high priest, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the, the whole council of the, the leading people, the leading religious people of Israel, and they don't seem to be getting anywhere, finding real concrete evidence so that they can condemn Jesus to death. And the high priest asks, Jesus straight out, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is the question. This is the opportunity now. There's no uh, confusion here. There's no mistakes here. And Jesus replies, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let me just point out a couple of things from what Jesus says here. First of all, can you see clearly how Christ Jesus affirms who he is? You're asking me, am I the Christ? I'm telling you, yes. I am, and, and that would have, oh, that's, the alarm bells are ringing, the lights are flashing. But look at the way he says it. He doesn't say, yes, you're right. He says, I am. And again, that would have resonated with the people sat listening to him. Today, that doesn't seem so obvious to me, to us. You know, David, are you the pastor of Welbeck Road Church? Yeah, I am. But in that context, that little phrase, I am, was the term used, it was the term reserved for God. This was God's personal name. He is the, the I am, who I am, Exodus 3 verse 14. This is what Jesus would regularly use in John's gospel. We saw that in our study. The I ams, or really, really explicitly in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what do you read next? Well, straight away, they pick up stones to stone Jesus for, to death because of his blasphemy. So they knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and Jesus meant to say what he said. I am. John 8, 23, you read it, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he. Now that word he is not in the Greek. All Jesus says is, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Just one more later on in John 8 when Jesus is about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as the crowd of priests and soldiers gather around him, he asks them who it is that they want. And they, they tell him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 5 it says, Jesus said to them, I am he. Again, that word he is not in the Greek. Jesus said to them, I am and then verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, and that word he's not in the Greek, okay, so let me read it again. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. There's, some, there's something in that that makes goose pimples come up. Something profound there said in the twilight of that garden that so affects these men that they are confronted with the reality of what Jesus is saying to them. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Jesus is repeatedly telling them, I am. That's who I am. And the people know what he means. That's why they want to stone him. They know what he means by using that phrase again and again. And then secondly, Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And especially here, there before the, the high priest, he uses it really 
blatantly, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A picture of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what Daniel saw. Daniel chapter 7. I saw someone like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And that to the Jews were always, that's always the Messiah, the King, the King of Kings, the anointed King. That's the one that they were supposedly waiting on for all their time. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that every people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. What kind of person would you say that is? What kind of person has a kingdom, has a dominion that is indestructible? What kind of person has full authority, full sovereignty over all the nations of the world, for all the peoples of the world to serve him? If that isn't a claim on deity, then why does the high priest go on to so dramatically tear his robes at hearing such a statement from Jesus? They understand what Jesus meant by what he says. And the Lord Jesus means every word of what he says. I think that's why C.S. Lewis is so helpful. He summarizes the evidence for what Jesus said and did as either evidence of him being a madman. To stand there in that context, in that situation, and say, yes, I am God. Either he is mad, knowing what would happen to him, or he is a bad man, a, a trickster. Someone who deceives others, and like these other people we've seen tonight, you know, they, they gain a following, and for the last 2,000 years, we've all been conned by this con man, Jesus of Nazareth. Either a madman, a bad man, or he is the God man. He is who he claims to be. And if that is so, every one of us must bow our knee to him tonight even, before one day we must bow our knee to him. Because he is the Lord God Almighty. Those crowds listening to Jesus, they faced those same three choices. Some thought he was mad. Some thought he was possessed. And so they said in John 10, 20, why listen to him? The elders, the scribes said he could only do what he did because he had the power of the devil. So again, he was tricking everyone. But others believed. Some became followers of him. They were amazed by what they heard. They were overwhelmed listening to this man, this new teacher, this new rabbi, how, how he spoke with such authority, not like the other teachers did. When Simon Peter was given the authority, or not, the, the opportunity to, to walk away, he said to him, Jesus, where, where can we go? How can we walk away when you have the words of life? When the temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus. They themselves ended up being arrested by what Jesus said. So they come back to their chief priests, seemingly stunned by what they heard. Imagine being there and hearing these temple guards say, no man ever spoke like this man. They were stunned. They were captivated by how Jesus said what he said. And when Philip, one of his disciples, after seeing and hearing everything Jesus did, he's still not 100% sure with him. Maybe you're not. 100% sure. So he asks Jesus to show them the Father. Just show us the Father and then we'll believe. And Jesus replies almost with a sense of exasperation. Philip, do you still not know me after all this time? 
Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? John 14, verse 10, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Again, what Jesus did and what Jesus said. The evidence, enough to convince that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And finally, as we close, it's also what others said of the Lord Jesus that we could use as evidence to help us determine why we should believe that that man, that one person in all of humanity, Jesus of Nazareth, is exclusively the Christ, the Son of God. And there are so many we could look at. Let me just fly through a few. We think of what Gabriel said to Mary. The child within you will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. You think too of what the angel said to the shepherds out in the fields. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. Not just He is Christ. He is Christ, the Lord. That phrase, the Lord, would normally be reserved for the Lord God. That is how the Hebrew for Yahweh or Jehovah would have been translated into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. He's the Lord. But what we find in the New Testament is that again and again it's used for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the ordinary looking bloke, the carpenter from nowhere, he is Christ the Lord. That's what others say of him, you see. Even the word for God, theos, you'll often find that word used in the New Testament for Jesus Christ. Peter, for example, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, speaking of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, we close tonight with arguably the greatest declaration, the greatest affirmation someone else, a human, could give to Jesus of his deity. And we're thinking of Thomas. Thomas there up in the upper room, and a week prior to this, Christ had appeared. The risen Jesus had come amongst the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And so having experienced Christ among them, they tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He's alive. And Thomas goes, I don't get it. I don't believe it. I won't believe it until I can see it with my eyes and put my finger in his hands and in his side. Then I will believe that, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ who would rise from the dead. And in his mercy, Christ comes and appears before Thomas. And Thomas, seeing Jesus, is so overwhelmed by the glory again. We have seen his glory. Thomas saw the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he simply yet profoundly replies, My Lord and my God. Both words he gives to Jesus. I wonder how much do we need be persuaded. Courts today will say, is it beyond reasonable doubt? Looking at the evidence of the person, is it beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus of Nazareth is the person he claimed to be? I would say so, but then I believe. You see, until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see that evidence, even with overwhelming evidence like they had in those days, they still wouldn't believe. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you read, some of them went down to the high priest and told them what had happened. And what did the high priest do? Let's plan. How can we get rid of this Jesus? 
We need to believe, and yet only the Holy Spirit can enable us to believe. We could say, as Thomas said, after all we have seen of Jesus tonight, he is indeed my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for tonight's message and the image of our Savior, Jesus. We pray, Lord, for that enabling help of the Holy Spirit. We do confess, O God, that, Lord, having heard so much of him and read so much of Jesus, Lord, we are a little dry. We pray, Lord, that you would revive us. We pray for fresh oil upon our hearts, that we would indeed love him, know him afresh, and be captivated by him again. Come to us, please, we pray, Lord. Will you do this? Because you love Jesus, Father. Please, will you do it for his sake? Do it in us for his sake, Lord. Please, for we need you, Lord. We ask this for ourselves and for all your church in the UK. Lord, revive us in these days, we pray in his name. Amen.